0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we again are so thankful to come and be able to share and study and, and join in uh, fellowship with uh, like-minded people. And we pray that your uh, spirit of truth and love will join us. May we grow closer in harmony with each other as we grow closer in love with you. We pray in our holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements to make. I need to remind people who are planning to give a a donation and want it to be in the 2019 tax deduction uh, aspect, you have to have it in by December 31 or have it postmarked by December 31. And then uh, mark your calendars. Next week we will meet exactly as normal here. The following week, January 11th, We will have Lesson 4 at 9.20 a.m., 9.20, an hour early, ending at 10.20, take a 10-minute break, have Lesson 5 at 10.30, ending at 11.30, and we're doing two classes that week because the following week is the Power of Love Training and Equipping course in Dallas, Texas, and our entire team will be there, so we will not have class on January 18 here. So we'll do both lessons, and then we'll be back on track the following week with Lesson 6 uh, to stay two weeks ahead for those who um, visit and use our materials around the world. Reminding people, it's still time to sign up for this if you'd like to attend. I think we have over 380 people registered to attend at this point in time, so we're looking for a very wonderful experience. And there's a flyer out in the back, and there's a website if you'd like more details if you don't know about it remind people about the Heavenly Sanctuary investigative judgment uh, for the modern world. We received an email this week from somebody, I'm not sure exactly where in the nation they were from, but they reported that with the rewrite that we have done, this is the second edition, edited and rewritten, he gave it to his pastor and his pastor asked for uh, copies to give to his entire church. So. Yeah, so it's uh, being much more positively received. And I want to thank all of you and our online uh, listening audience who sent in the critiques and feedback to help us rewrite this to a way that's uh, more more palatable for some people, less confrontational. And we appreciate that. Okay, so lesson number two in the uh, quarterly Daniel is From Jerusalem to Babylon is the, is the title of the lesson. And when you think of the title and you think, uh, do you think... When you hear from Jerusalem to Babylon, are you thinking Israel going into captivity Babylon? Because you know, in our modern mind today, when we hear Jerusalem, we think Jerusalem and we think Israel. But um, at the death of Solomon in 931 BC, uh, Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom with ten tribes was known as Israel. And the southern kingdom with two tribes remained loyal to the line of David, And that was known as Judah, and Jerusalem was in Judah, and it was made up of Judah and Benjamin. So Israel, the ten tribes to the north, was conquered, and its ten tribes were absorbed by the Assyrians in the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. Babylon didn't conquer Judah and take Daniel and his friends captive until 598 B.C., so about 130 years or so later, evidently. So when we think from Jerusalem to Babylon, the nation of Israel, the ten tribes are gone already. It's Benjamin and Judah, and then the Levites who was, were distributed between both kingdoms. Uh, uh, some of the Levites that were man, maintaining the pre, the, the, uh, the temple. Now, as we think about this historical reality, real historical people, Daniel, shadrach Meshach, Bendigo, the, king, the, the nation of Judah, real people, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, real people doing real stuff. As we think about that history, is there a lesson for us today that goes beyond just the historical? Do Jerusalem and Babylon provide not just historical facts, but do they represent spiritual kingdoms? Think New Jerusalem. Think Revelation, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Do do these kingdoms, Jerusalem and Babylon, represent spiritual kingdoms? And if so, what are the salient core distinctions that really mark the differences between these two kingdoms? Well, Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, is a holy place. Babylon would be unholy. Jerusalem would be a place where people are united under one head, Jesus Christ. We have unity. We have harmony. Babylon would be a place of confusion, disunity, fragmentation. Jerusalem represents those who practice God's design laws. Laws upon which the Creator built reality to operate. (laughs) Babylon would represent those who practice human, imperial, imposed law systems. Jerusalem would be a place where people are healed and restored, healthy people. Babylon would be a place that destroys, damages, corrupts people. Jerusalem values, core values of Jerusalem, truth, love, freedom. Core values of Babylon are lies, selfishness, coercion. In other words, power over people, domination. Jerusalem is led by Jesus. Babylon is led by Satan pretending to be Jesus. It's being Part of either God's kingdom represented by Jerusalem or Satan's kingdom represented by Babylon, determined by in other words, which kingdom are you a part of? As time unfolds, as we're looking for the future. Is it defined by genetics? If you if you have the right family ancestry, you're descended biologically from Abraham, does that put you in one of those two kingdoms? Is it defined? We're part of part of the, the Jerusalem God's kingdom. Or we're part of Babylon. Is it defined by denominational affiliation? If we're a member of this denomination, then that makes us a member of God's kingdom. What determines whether someone is a member of God's kingdom or the kingdom of the world, the Babylon the Babylon kingdom? Your choice. Your choice about what? Who you follow. follow. Do you think most of the people in Babylon think they're following Satan? Or are they choosing in their mind to follow Jesus? Mm -hmm. Do you think most people in Babylon that are part of the kingdom of Babylon would say, I know I'm rejecting God and I'm rejecting Jesus and I prefer the, 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 the devil who is the destroyer. That's what I want to be a part of. Do you think they're saying that? Or do you think, remember Jesus said, they will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We perform miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. In other words, they, they're doing all these things in the name of Jesus. They think they're following Jesus. But he says, get you, hence, ye workers of iniquity... There, so, so it's not who you verbally claim or think you're following. It's are you working in harmony with God's methods and designs? Or are you doing iniquitous things which are, which are breaking God's designs or laws or methods or principles? It really comes down to the practices, which then comes down to what? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks so the practices and methods are really reveal revelations of the heart character we we have what we value and so i would say what makes us a member of one of the two kingdoms is whether we have come to a real relationship with jesus of course that has renewed our hearts so his design laws are written in and we grow in the practice of his methods that puts us in god's kingdom Whereas those in the kingdom of the world may claim a belief in Jesus, but they accept the imperial law lie, and they're willing to practice the methods of coercion and force upon others, which makes them authoritarian, and makes their characters and hearts hard over time. I would suggest this is the core difference. Any, any, anybody you know, th- you know, I want to add to that, to disagree with that, clarify that, or, or do you, are you comfortable with that idea? But it still comes from choices. Yes, the choices, that's right. You know, you choose to learn more about God. You choose to spend time with God. All that it still comes from your choices. That's exactly correct. And people are faced with choices of what version of God they believe. What methods that they want to practice. You're exactly right. And those choices impact. And we're going to come to unpack that more in this lesson. So, does God, does God have some people that are his people? Right in heart. In systems that are part of the confused, in in, in, the, in religions, denominations, organizations that are part of the confused systems that make up Babylon. Does he have people there? Yes. Revelation 18.4. I heard a voice coming from heaven saying, come out of Babylon, my people, so that you do not participate in her sins and suffer from any of her plagues. So here in Revelation 18.4, uh, the voice from heaven is calling his people out of the confusion out of the confused systems that are working against him. So, yes, individuals can be in these systems that are practicing methods and principles that are opposite of God's. Can one come out of a denomination, join another denomination, and still be in Babylon? And still be a practicer of the Babylonian systems of doing things? So... How would you describe, if somebody says, "Well, you know, it, it talks about Babylon in the last days. How would you describe, how would you tell somebody, this is what it means to be part of the Babylonian system? What would you tell them? Would you tell them, well, it depends on which day you go to church on. If you go to church on that day, you're in Babylon. If you go to church on this day, you're in the remnant. Is that what you say? It comes down. That's all you have to do. One, one thing. Is, is that the clarifying distinction? Yes. I think it depends on your character and whether you believe and practice the design law or whether you believe and practice the imperial system. I I, I think that's well said. Your character. Are you in character like Christ and have his laws, his methods, his principles, his designs restored in you? Or are you like the authoritarian dictators that want to dominate over others even in the name of Christ, we will burn you at the stake because we love you. We're just trying to save your eternal soul. We're torturing you to get you to confess your sin and accept Jesus as your savior. We can only burn you till your body dies. God loves you so much that if you don't accept him before your body dies, he'll burn you for all eternity. That's how much he loves you. I mean, they did stuff like this. Do you understand why that's described as beastly? That's beastly. Are there dangers today, right now, 2019, about to be 2020, are there dangers of people going from Jerusalem, God's people, to Babylon today, systems of the world? How did ancient Jerusalem get taken captive by Babylon? How did that happen? What was the cause? What were the factors that made that the end result? And are there lessons that apply to us? <laughs> Worshiping other gods. So they were unfaithful to God. Marrying, joining. joining and aligning with people who were not on God's side. So the marriage metaphor doesn't have to be literally physical marriage or legal marriage that we talk about today. That metaphor could also be joining our hearts together together with people who are not on God's team, aligning with them, bringing them into our systems of operations, um, affiliating with them in ways that give a equal, um, what's the word I'm looking for, power over what we do to people who are not actually converted. That's a marriage metaphor. Uniting with people who are not on God's team. Would that have a a, a potential threat to our spiritual, and, and even organizational well-being. So they were unfaithful to God. They rejected his truth. They chose the methods, practices, and beliefs of the world through a variety of ways. So what did God do? How did God act? What was his choice? He set them free. If that's what you insist on, Ephraim is, this is Hosea I'm quoting, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. This is what God did. If you insist... On going this way, after all of the, the, did God send spokespersons known as prophets to them over and over and warn them and 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 beg them and plead with them and give them object lessons and metaphoricals and 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 specific warnings? Did he do it over and over? But after all the warnings and attempts, if they insist on going that way, what's the only action that love can take? He let them go. Is there a lesson for us today about how we can become captive to the world? What happens to our hearts, minds, characters when we reject truth of God's kingdom, methods, principles, and instead prefer either to believe or to practice the methods of the world? Does God set us free to reap what we insistently choose? And in that reaping are there hard lessons, Parents, have you ever instructed small children as they were growing, don't touch the hot stove? Have you ever had an unruly child or just a forgetful child or maybe a little disobedient child who despite your warnings and you're reaching out and grabbing them at the last minute, somehow was able to touch it anyway? Was there a painful result to them? And was that educational? Did it teach them? Would you have benefited the child had you had the ability to urgently and emergently just as their hand was about to touch that stove spray it with numbing medicine would you have helped them (laughs) do you see why sometimes god lets people reap painful consequence and not numb the consequence because it limits what happens when you touch that stove when you feel pain you pull your hand back as quickly as you possibly can limiting the damage and you learn lesson if This is why leprosy is a metaphor for sin. Leprosy damages pain fibers. It does not damage tissue. You just can't feel pain anymore. And so the leper who touches the hot stove doesn't feel pain. Their hand doesn't reflexively pull back. They leave it there until their nose smells burning flesh. And then by the time they pull it back, there's much more damage. Leprosy sears or damages our conscience. The sensitivity to deviation from God's design, and and thus the actions have much more devastating consequences before we finally realize and wake up go maybe this isn't the way yes so god's moral law has the same kinds of consequences when you commit adultery or you steal or you kill or whatever you do if you observe you will see what the consequences are this is exactly right this is a critical statement do you know those who oppose this ministry One of their core objections are they do not object to God's physical design laws. They embrace that God's made gravity and God makes the laws of physics and God makes the laws of health. On the physical side, they embrace design law. But what they reject are that the moral laws are design laws. They teach that the moral laws are rules that function like our laws, and he made a list that you must obey, or he will punish you. That's justice in their view. They make a distinction, but you have pointed out the exact truth. When you violate a moral law, it is a design law. A person who steals from their employer, and they're not caught, does not get away with it. Their consciences are convicted, they will feel guilt, they will have a heightened sense of fear and anxiety, they will either repent, which will then bring healing, or they will deny, distort, and create a false dialogue in their head, which only corrupts their character. Well, I deserve that. I've worked uh, this and, and I didn't get recognized for that. another person got the promotion, they've only been two years, and I've been here four years, so they owe me this, and, and all this rationalization would only corrupts their character further. Their sense of well being is diminished. They become more judgmental of others. You cannot avoid the damaging consequence of breaking God's design laws. Even the moral laws are always inherently damaging to those who break them. That's how reality works. And that's why health and peace and wellness, just like with the physical laws, are only found in harmony with living in harmony with God's moral laws. That's how reality works. Good. Thank you for bringing that up. So, uh, along those lines, does God have to use his power to inflict damage upon us when we break his laws? No, he does not. So what is Babylon actually today? If we want to be literal instead of metaphorical, what's the literal Babylon? Well, here's one of the founders of the SDA church um, who wrote this in the book called Great Controversy, page 381. In Revelation 14, the first angel is followed by a second, proclaiming Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink the wine of her wrath, of her fornication. The term Babylon is derived from Babel, And signifies confusion. It is employed in scripture to designate the various forms of false or apostate religion. This is broader than false Christianity. I want to put that idea. So many times we focus false Christianity. This author says false or apostate religion is represented by Babylon. In Revelation 17, Babylon is represented as a woman, a figure which is used in the Bible as a symbol of a church. Now we get to Christianity. A virtuous woman representing a pure church, a vile woman representing an apostate church. So Babylon, prior to Christ, was Babylon in existence? Was there with our false and apostate religious systems in the world? But after Christ, the church was established, and the Bible warns that in the time there's a Babylonian type system of religion that infects the church—an apostate church, a church that does not represent Christ. It's not pure. Do you agree that that's what Babylon represents? False religious systems that misrepresent God, including false systems in Christianity. What do you think is the root cause for the confusion? All these multitude of conflicting doctrines, beliefs. Look at, just look at Christianity now. Within Christianity is there unity of belief and understanding of the Bible. There is a conflicting, uh, and, uh, dis- not just disagreeing, but often opposing views. exactly the opposite views being taught in the same scripture. Why is this, how is this even possible that this could happen? I will tell you, there's one root lie that underpins it all. And, and we have been talking about this for years in here. And that root lie that underpins it all, all this confusion, is how do you understand God's law? If you understand God's law functioning like human law, a system of imposed rules requiring punishments, rather than worshiping the Creator whose laws are design laws, that causes a confusion. I'll give you an example. How many laws, human laws, human laws, are there in force here in this city, this county, this state, and this nation? How many human laws are in force here? Right upon us right now. And and, and how many more would we have if we added all the municipalities from the entire country? And how many more if we added all the laws of all the countries of the world? And if we added all these human laws from all the countries of the world together, would they all be in harmony? No. No. Would there be some that are exactly the opposite? How about in our own nation? there are places where one county or district or city or state have laws that are exactly the opposite of what is legal and allowed in other states? For instance, I'll give you a simple one. Is marijuana legal in some states and illegal in other states? Mm -hmm. Do we have harmony in our human laws? Why don't we have harmony? Because of the type of law they are. They're just made up rules. They're just made up. That's all and there's our legal justice system so convoluted complicated confusing contradictory that anybody who has to deal with it needs a legal expert lawyer to help them deal with it yes or no yes. when we have theology built upon human law we have all kinds of made up beliefs that are not grounded in reality and often contradictory and confusion we have confusing we have religions made up making things up that are so complicated, convoluted, confusing, that believers need an expert, a theologian, a pastor, a pope, a priest, somebody who has studied for decades in order to tell them what it means. This is part of Satan's world. This is not God's kingdom not how he wants things to work. Now let me show you the design law, how simple it gets when you go to design law. When you look at design law, is there any confusion in the world today, in any culture, in any group, in any religion over the benefits of clean air and clean water? Do you have anybody saying we want contaminated, we want our water contaminated with sewage? Nobody argues for that. Everybody understands the benefits. So simple. So how about the damaging effects of tobacco smoke today in our society? The whole world knows this. People may smoke, but they know the damaging effects. How about the results of jumping off buildings? (laughs) There's no argument. Catholic, Jewish person, uh, Protestant, uh, Buddhist, Muslim, they're all on top of the Empire State Building. There's no disagreement about what happens if they all jump. They don't have different theological views on that. It's constants. It's how reality works. Only when we come back to God's design laws do we understand and have harmony. It's it's unifying. But let me ask you this. Is there still confusion today amongst religious groups over dietary practices? Why? There's a reason. Because in many religions, dietary practices are not built on the laws of health. They're built on a religious code, made-up rules, like not using these utensils that have been used with milk products with the with these um, foods that have meats in them. We can't use those utensils or refrigerators or ovens if we use them for milk and cheese. They can't be used for meat. That's a made-up rule. It's confusing. Or because people misunderstand the scripture and apply instructions over ceremonial theatrical practices to actual health practices. For instance, doing away with the ceremonial laws, you no longer have to practice the the theater anymore. So there's no ceremonial condemnation for eating things in certain ways and washing your hands in certain foods. Uh, Confusing those theatrical instructions with the laws of health. Well, if I'm not going to be ceremonially condemned for eating anything I want, then, then any, I can eat anything. It's all good. It's all healthy, right? Well, no, it's not. People confuse those laws, the laws of health with the code of religious instruction. When we confuse God's law for man's law, a system of rules that is often the result, of religi- often the result for religious people, they often make up rules. Then we end up in confusion. Not only do they end up, we end up fragmented into different groups, I want you to see this, when we do this, when we go down the trail of, of God's law works like human law, we need to make up rules, we, we, must, we must police those rules. Not only do we end up confused, broken, fragmented, because we want somebody who accepts the rules as we accept them, we eventually, inevitably, end up coercing people to keep our rules. We end up, if we get power, or seeking power, to police first in our church, let's disfellowship those folks let's censor those folks let's we police and you don't believe the way i believe you believe in baptism by spring it doesn't matter that you have been reborn you have a gracious christ-like heart that you started a ministry to help the homeless that doesn't matter you haven't been baptized by immersion get out of my church we begin enforcing rules rather than unifying around the principles of god's kingdom truth love freedom From the same book I quoted earlier, Great Controversy, page 383, two pages later. Many of the Protestant churches are following Rome's example of iniquitous connection with the kings of the earth. The state churches, by their relation to secular governments and other denominations, by seeking the favor of the world. And the term "babylon" confusion may be appropriately applied to these bodies, all professing to derive their doctrines from the Bible yet divided into almost innumerable sects with widely conflicting creeds and theories what is, what what when we accept the lie that god 's law functions like human law, not only we fragmented our own rules and try to recruit as many people to our rules we 've been policing the rules and been and then coercing various levels, and then eventually seek the power of the state. Not even people who want to join with us do we police. We police people who don't want to be with us. You need to conform to our practices. We need to pass laws to make it criminal to do this or to do that or to do something else. What is it that moves people from God's kingdom to Babylon? I believe it's rejecting God. as creator as evidenced by his design laws and accepting human-imposed law. As God's law that corrupts the way we see God, corrupts the way we understand his methods, and it causes confusion. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, it says, this is page uh, 124, In the professedly Christian world, many turn away from the plain teachings of the Bible and build up a creed from human speculations and pleasing fables. And they point to their tower as a way to climb up to heaven. Pause. Why? Why do people build up this creed, whatever the creed might be? What is the reason for us to make this list of the 28 things you must attest to? If somebody only believes 16 of them, they don't believe all 28, they believe 16. Does that mean they're, they're not on God's side? They're lost because they don't have the right cognitive understanding of, of truth. Are we saved by our cognitive attestations to a list of beliefs? Is that what saves us? What saves us? What does salvation actually mean? Healing Healing of heart, mind, and character, so that fear and selfishness are replaced with love and trust. Now, it's true the person who is saved by God, has a new heart and right spirit, will be a lover of truth. They will want to grow in actual truth, the truth of God as he's revealed it in scripture. This is true, but are all of us on the same progression of truth assimilation? Can two people have absolute pure hearts with God, love the truth, love to grow in the truth, but be at different places in their? One's a freshman in high school, the other's got a postgraduate degree. But they both have hearts that love to grow in truth. Should we judge people and their sincerity and whose kingdom they're in based on whether they've gotten to the point they accept all 28? I don't think so. I think it really is their attitude when they're confronted with divergent views. I think one of the things you can see is people reveal their character when you suggest, well, maybe that's not necessary. Do they go, Romans 14, that's okay, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. We can love each other and not agree on this particular fact or point or interpretation of um, the, the, the horns of, uh, of the beast in Daniel. Uh, we can have different views of that and still love God's principles and kingdoms and methods and, and how we work. Truth, love, freedom. I give you freedom to see it differently. It's okay. Or do we go, you're going to burn. You're a heretic. You don't see it like this. I'm sorry. If you don't agree with this, God will have to burn you. You've heard that kind of stuff? Is that more revelatory than the actual accepting of the doctrine? We call it church discipline. Church discipline. Yeah. Continuing with the quote, men. Pardon? It's always I know better than everybody else. Yeah. Because obviously I'm smarter than everyone else. And so what? And so what's driving this discomfort with somebody's divergent view? What drives it in the person? Fear. 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 They become insecure. They become uncomfortable. They need the other agreement for them to be reinforced. And what is the, one of the, the root emotion to Satan's kingdom? Fear. Fear, Fear which, which drives selfishness. Soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Fear causes us to look out for who? For ourselves. Perfect love casts out all... So these types of responses of intolerance are always driven by fear, just as prejudices and bigotries, uh, etc., etc., are always driven by fear. As love comes in the heart, fear is driven out, and we can accept people who are at different stages, and we can even, when I say accept, a parent who has a child who's smoking two packs a day doesn't accept cigarettes as healthy. They know they're not. They love the child anyway, and they accept the child's freedom to do that if they want. But they never their acceptance is never understood to say, oh, cigarette smoke's just as healthy as not smoking. It's never understood to say that. And this is where people get confused when it comes to other issues of morality. That we can love the person who hasn't given their heart to Christ, but, but this idea if we love them and give them the freedom to not accept Christ and still love them, somehow that's interpreted as this idea that, Oh, you're condoning sin. No, you're not. Look at Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Did he condone her sin? Did he accept her? This is grace. I love you. Uh, You're free to leave here and go back to what you were doing, but there's no health there. There's no joy there. There's no happiness. There's only destruction down that path. I know what you were doing. I don't need to condemn you. If you didn't get caught and dragged out before me today, here's what would have happened to you. You would have gone home with your head hung low, covering your head in shame, not wanting people to see you, feeling guilt, feeling unworthy, feeling loathsome about yourself. Not because anyone did that to you. That's what sin naturally does. I don't need to condemn you. Your own actions are condemning you. (laughs) Go and live in harmony with my design for life. Be renewed. Go and sin no more. And it was the grace she saw and she was loved by this person who knew what she had done. She didn't think it was possible. It's not possible. You can't love me. I'm a sinner. I'm corrupt. I'm a harlot. Nobody can love me. I deserve stoning. But it was his grace and he loved her without condoning the destructive path that she was on. Yes? We are so worried, though, about being judgmental to others that often we instead treat them with indifference and we ignore things that we could lovingly persuade and help people with. Yes, there is absolutely a place for loving confrontation, but only if you have a connection of a loving relationship. If you don't know the person, they don't know you, it's very difficult for them to understand you love them. It will only come across as your intolerance for them. So you have to have that connection first. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, continue on with the quote Men hang with admiration upon the lips of eloquence while it teaches that the transgressor shall not die, that salvation may be secured without obedience to the law of God. Think of obedience to the law of God, rule keeping? No. It'd be like saying a person can live without obeying the law of respiration. That's all it's saying. No, you can't. You can you you can you know tie a plastic bag over your head, you're free to do it, but you can't have healthy living doing that. That's all it's saying, obedience to the law of God. If the professed follower of Christ would accept God's standard, it would bring him into unity. But so long as human wisdom is exalted above his holy word, there will be division and dissension. The existing confusion of conflicting creeds and sects is fitly represented by the term Babylon. Notice, human wisdom, laws, imposition of rules, coming to God's standard how he built reality to operate. That's the key. Uh, Real quick uh, closing point on this aspect of our lesson. In Revelation, it describes uh, Babylon as also the harlot, and it describes the harlot was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold. Arrayed with purple, scarlet, adorned with gold. The harlot of Revelation is a counterfeit to Christ and Christ's church. The high priest... There's a metaphor or representative of Christ, right? And the high priest had three, four colors in his robes. Gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. The harlot has three of those four. Which one's missing? Blue. blue. And what does blue represent? It represents the law of God. This is why the Jewish people have blue in their prayer robes and other things because it represents God's law. And God's law is not a list of rules. It's the design protocols upon which they are God-built reality to, to operate. The high priest wore a breastplate with the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes symbolically represents the peoples of the world that are united to him. Do you know what it was tied to the ephod with? Blue cords. Blue cords tied the chest, the chest plate to the high priest. symbolically saying we are tied uh, to God by the law of love." And this is desire of ages 3:29. "The yoke that binds to service is the law of God, the great law of love revealed in Eden. False religions of the world, including false Christianity, des- deny. God's design laws, and embrace imperialism, and thus they all teach an authoritarian God who has a judicial process in which he is the source of inflicted pain and suffering upon his children. Rather than teaching the truth that the wages of sin is death, sin when full grown brings forth death, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction, and God has been working through Christ to fix the damage that sin does to his creation and heal all those who trust him. That's the reality, and that's the message that God has for this time. Sunday's lesson, I don't know we'll get through it all today, guys, but we're working. Sunday's lesson, the title for the day is God's Sovereignty. We've talked about this before. What does it mean? This is going to come up over and over again in this, in this, in this quarter. God's Sovereignty. I want you to be clear on this because it's so abused and mistaught. Is God in control? You will hear this all the time. God's in control. Well, of what? Whenever you hear God is in control, you should, you should immediately fire back. Of what? And He is in control of Himself and His design laws upon which reality operates. That's what He controls directly. And one of those design laws is the law of liberty. That's one of the design laws. God never takes control of people, forcing them to do his will, making them puppets. Never. If he were to do that, it would violate liberty, destroy love, and destroy their individuality. They would be overwritten. It wouldn't be them anymore. He will not do that. Thus, God doesn't control people. This is why bad things happen in a world in which God is in control. Because he's controlling himself and the laws upon which reality operate, including the law of liberty, which is the law for people to choose. And so when you actually see an act of evil being chosen by somebody, that's evidence that God is in control because he provides the freedom for them to make that choice. Hmm. takes a certain level of maturity to see that. Immature people go, well, if God was love, I would never let somebody do that. Well, I wouldn't give them that. Hmm. But even though he, God gives them the liberty to make those choices, It does not negate ever the damage to their own hearts, minds, characters, consciences. They can't avoid that because it's design law. They can choose the evil, but they can't choose evil with a healthy outcome. You can't do it. You can't choose to smoke cigarettes and have healthy lungs. You just can't make that choice. It's not an option. You can choose to smoke, but you can't choose to be healthy and smoke. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All down the design laws. The lesson asks, why does does God give Judah and Jerusalem into the hands of the Babylonians? Was God punishing them for their disobedience? This is often taught. They were disobedient, they wouldn't stay loyal, so God punished them for their disobedience. Is that what happened? Well, I guess it could depend on how you use, how you personally define the word punishment. Some people have used that word to mean discipline. Personally, I like to differentiate those two words. Punishment comes from the word punitive, means take vengeance upon, to simply if inflict an, a consequence of pain and suffering upon someone for breaking a rule, punishing. I like discipline. Discipline means come from the root word disciple. It means to teach, to educate, to enlighten, to help build up someone who's going down a destructive path. I will tell you, if you remember the context of Old Testament scripture, and what's the context of Old Testament scripture, the overall great controversy context. starts in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sins, God promises a Messiah that will crush the serpent's head. And the rest of the Old Testament is a process of these two grand forces, the forces of truth, love, freedom, battling lies, selfishness, and coercion for the purpose of bringing Messiah to earth to save the species. That's the whole story. If you miss the story, if you get lost in the weeds, losing the forest for the trees, which many people do, and they focus on individual standalone stories, they don't see what's actually happening, they don't make sense of it. But look at the context. God tried, Satan tried to harden everybody's heart against God, so that nobody would cooperate to be the mother of Jesus. And at one point in human history, again, only one righteous man and his family is left. Act of punishment? I don't believe it. Act of therapeutic, a therapeutic action? How about through the rest of the Old Testament? God then tells Abraham, it's from your family. The Messiah is coming. Satan doesn't have to destroy all human branches of the, of the, of the family tree now. He only has to destroy Abraham's branch. And not just Abraham's branch, Isaac's branch, so not just Isaac's branch, Jacob's branch. He can focus on that branch of the human family. He can destroy them. He blocks the the avenue for Messiah. This is what we have. This is why we have such a focus on this family in Scripture, and we don't have much about the Chinese or the Japanese. Because it wasn't through that branch of the human family that the battle for the salvation of the planet is being waged. And by the time We're reading the story here in Daniel. Ten tribes are gone. Satan has been successful in eliminating and assimilating and corrupting and corroding ten tribes, so they're not available anymore for the Messiah. Two tribes are left. And why did they go into captivity? Because they were faithfully and loyally keeping God first in their life and promoting the truth as revealed in Scripture and teaching the world? Or did they go into captivity because they were also going down the path of paganism? And the truth about God was threatened to be lost. And so God allowed the captivity to come and and think of the outcome. Did being taken captive in Babylon destroy this branch of the family tree and destroy those who were loyal to God? Or did it actually work to keep open the family tree and have a remnant restored to be available for Christ to be born? It was, in my view, not a punishment at all. God permitted this for a therapeutic purpose, knowing it was necessary, as painful as it is, let the child touch the hot stove. Painful, but therapeutic. For the larger purpose. Last paragraph. It says, as we face challenges in the 21st century, we need to, re- um, we need to recapture the perception of of God that is so vividly reflected in the book of Daniel. According to this book, the God whom we serve not only drives the forces of history through his sovereignty, but also mercifully intervenes in the lives of his people to provide them with crucial help in the time of need. Did any part of your brain go, wait a second, would you have expressed it like that? Any part of say? I'd like it rephrased, please. Can we just rephrase that, please? drives the forces of human history, does that mean God drove Judah into rebellion so that they could go into Babylonian captivity? It was God behind their rebellion. God was driving them into paganism. Is that what that means? I don't like the idea, God. When you you drive your car, who's making the decision on which roads you go down? I don't like this term, drives. I just don't like it. Or when, when, a, when a sheep herder is, is, or a cattle rancher is driving his herd, do we see God with a whip behind us driving the forces down a certain path? I don't like it. I don't like it. I think to uh, rightly understand these things, we must realize there are two antagonistic systems fighting on planet Earth. God and his kingdom of truth, love, and freedom against Satan and his kingdom of lies, selfishness, and coercion. If we forget these two factors are fighting, and God never uses Satan's methods. This is Satan's goal, to get us to accept that God is the source of pain, inflicted punishments, um, death, suffering... Some people will object, but you just said a moment ago, without the flood, you just said a moment ago about this action. Well, is he not bringing pain? I'm talking about non-therapeutic actions. Has anybody ever been inside an OR suite when a hip was being replaced by an orthopedic surgeon? I have been in the suite watching. Do you know it appears quite violent? Seriously, they take a saw they cut the bone. They will take a hammer and they will drive with force down into that bone—a a pin and a rod—and and, and, they—it looks—and it will have sometimes two people if the guy is big and large, two people pulling with all their strength. It looks quite violent. A lot of force is being used, moving against the natural order of the body. Is that harmful, destructive, evil? No, many people misunderstand. But how about if you took a primitive? Somebody has no knowledge of modern medicine, and they just got to view what was happening in the OR suite. Might they think this was the most horrid form of medieval torture going on where they're cutting people up and driving stuff into their bodies? This is a horrible, mean, perverse society. This is how many view God's actions in Old Testament times when he therapeutically did use power. But he never uses power to coerce. He never uses power to, to, to force hearts and minds. He uses power to restrain and to heal. But don't you think it's the word, the use of the word, I'm coming to punish you, I'm going to take them and use them as my weapon against you. Uh, bringing this, this uh, group against the way the Old Testament works Yes, because because people misunderstand reality. Um, pa- uh, how many of you parents have ever had a rule for your children not to play in the street when they were small? Did you ever have a rule like that? How about if you lived in a busy city with a busy street? My grandmother, when I when I grew when I was growing up, she lived on the main street of a city, and her house was one of those houses that had you came out, you stepped off the front porch immediately onto a sidewalk, and there was only the width of the sidewalk, and then there was the curb of the of the, of the traffic, and it was a heavy, heavy trafficked street. There was a rule for us not to play in the street, and, and if your child were to play in the street, what would a loving parent do, assuming the child played and had not yet been hit by a car? Would the parent intervene with some type of threat? Would they? Would the parent step in and inflict upon the child something the child experiences as perhaps painful? Would they? Would they do that? And if we talk to the child, the child, Linda, and said to the child, why is it wrong to play in the street? The child very likely will say, because mommy and daddy has a rule. Well, if you disobey the rule, what, is the, what makes it wrong? What's, what's bad about disobeying the rule? What might the child say? Mommy and daddy will punish me. Okay. Now, is this in reality why it's bad to play in the street? No. no. So notice the love of the parent. The love, and this is, this is the Old Testament, the parent loves the child so much that the parent is willing to step in between the child and the reality and allow for a period of time for the child to view the parent as the source of pain and suffering in order to protect the child from the real harm that comes from breaking design law, the laws of physics, when their body gets hit by the car. Long enough for the child to grow up into maturity, read Hebrews 5 and 6, And when the child, all of us, have grown up into maturity, do we all look back and go, thank you, Mom and Dad, for the rule, for the spanking that you gave me, because had you not, I would have likely been killed by a car playing in the street. That is what God is waiting for, for his mature people to read the Old Testament and understand that these people were running toward a cliff of idolatrous destruction of their characters and minds. They didn't understand it destroys you to worship false gods. And so God stepped in between them and that destructive reality took upon his shoulders the willingness to allow himself to be viewed as the source of pain and suffering, even though he was not. That's how I read it. But many children still don't understand. And that's why we're called to grow up. Monday's lesson... Upon arrival in Babylon, these four young men have to face the most serious of challenges of their faith and their convictions. Um, and then Tuesday Lesson points out that the captives uh, didn't object to their names being changed to Babylonian names, which were in reference to Babylonian gods, but they did object to the food choices. And I want to explore why they drew the line where they drew the line. This is critical to understand healthy decision-making. They drew the line of no compromise where they did because of an underlying principle that we need to learn and apply to ourselves. Was their line about food primarily about vegetarianism? No. Were, in fact, Daniel and the three worthies vegetarians? And we know they weren't because they were Jewish and prior to their captivity and all certainhood, they they observed the annual feasts. And one of those feasts is the Passover feast, which required them to eat lamb. So it's, it's, it's inconceivable they were vegetarian. What you have going on here was not about vegetarianism, even though, let's be clear, vegetarian diets are healthy. There's health benefits from eating a vegetarian diet. Physical benefits, brain benefits, clarity of thought benefits. There's lots of benefits, but this was not about vegetarian diet versus non-vegetarian diet. It was about worship, and it was about who was going to get credit for their wisdom and their insight and their knowledge. They wanted credit to go to the creator god. They didn't want credit to go to the pagan gods of Babylon, so they made a distinction that their conscience felt was important. To eat the food of the king's table was not simply about physical health, it was about saying, I accept your gods. That's what it was about. However, the choice of the Babylonian names wasn't the choice of what they did in governance of self, what I eat is up to me in governance of me. What other people call me is not up to me. That's what they do in governance of them. So they did not try to draw a line to get other people to conform to their beliefs. They only focused on governance of self. Now, this is very important. The goal of the corrupting power, whether it was the corrupting power of Babylon or the corrupting powers today in your life and my life is to get the person, I'm going to emphasize this now, to willingly choose to participate in the corruption. It is the choice to participate that is the corrupting factor, not the objective thing you're choosing. Adam and Eve made a choice to participate in a lie. It was the choice to believe the lie about God and to participate in it that corrupted them there was nothing poisonous in the fruit. The fruit was a, was an innocuous thing. It had no bearing on their health. You can choose something as innocent as a piece of fruit. It is the choice of why and what you're trying to achieve by it that is the corrupting aspect. This is what and once you make a small choice that goes against your conscience, small little thing, it's not that big deal. It really won't matter. That choice to go against your conscience corrupts you. And if you don't resolve through God's grace, repent, then you will be more vulnerable to corruption the next time and another little choice and another little choice and you go down that road. This is why, uh, yeah, it is always Satan's goal to get us to choose, to choose, Even if it's something that seems in itself harmless, it's the act of choosing that changes. Brain science shows that people can become physically addictive to opiates by self-administration or by IV administration that they don't participate in. And they look at the brain regions and if and they compare those who've become chemically addicted, physically addicted to opiates that have been administered by a third party versus people who come chemically addicted to opiates administered by self. And in both groups, the reward circuits of the brain, where you get a buzz, where you get a high, and those types of circuits have the same damaging effect, whether it's from a third-party administration or self-administration. But in the orbital frontal cortex, that's the part above your eye. This is the part where you get a conviction of wrongdoing. This is a part that redirects you away from inappropriate behavior. Only those who self-administered had the damaging changes in that part of the brain. Those who had it administered to them had no damaging changes to their orbital cortex. The point is, you can have chemical or physical changes made to your body against your will, but you cannot have your conscience seared without your choice. And neurobiology, I've got the references in the notes from people who want to get the articles and look at that. It's very profound to get into the weeds. It's epigenetic modifications of the neurons that are, that are happening. But those changes only happen in the orbital cortex if you willfully participate. The lesson points out in Tuesday's lesson, the conflict over diet and, and Daniel's friends in the 10-day test. The concern with the overseer was that Daniel and his friends wouldn't be, would become less healthy or wouldn't be as healthy as the Babylonians. He had this belief. Why did he have this belief? Because he was a product of his culture. And his culture taught him a lie that this practice was healthier than this practice. And he believed his culture. Today we see this all the time where people are raised to believe certain practices, ideas, ways of doing things and are resistant to change. The medical professionals resisted Pasteur and Lister's germ theory and sterilization of equipment. Hypertension was identified in the 1930s as a medical problem, and the medical establishment resisted it. Health damaging effects to most people of, notice how I say this, to most people of eating most animal products are resisted. You notice how I said most people of most animal products? I didn't say all people of all animal products. Because it's not true. Some people actually are healthier eating animal products than, than eating a vegetarian diet because of genetics and things going on in their body. The rejection, how about this, the rejection of the legal views of the plan of salvation embracing design law. People have been raised in a certain culture that it's all legal, and they resist the truth of God's design law. Um in the lesson I'm going to hopefully I'm going to get to this maybe in one other point but in the lesson it uses the phrase in the lesson um, where do I find this phrase oh um, talking about them eating the, the fruits nuts and vegetables the plant based diet there it said, the lesson says after all what could be better what could be a better diet than the one God originally gave us have you heard something expressed like that before mm-hmm. and do you, did your heart go amen brother Ben do you go like that is that what you hear is that what you think I hope you'll think and go wait a second hold on Uh, of course it's true that there's no better diet than than God originally intended for of course that's an absolute true statement but it's completely inaccessible to any of us how many of you have access to the tree of life Mm -hmm. that was part of the original diet wasn't it how many of you have had access to any plant based food that is free of all genetic defects that is not uh, corrupted by the weight of sin that all nature groans under. Prior to sin, there were no thistles, there were no thorns, there were no nightshade, there was no hemlock, there was no poison mushrooms, there was no poison ivy. All of these things that have corrupted. And guess what? There were no GMO foods. Genetically modified foods didn't exist. And there's good, strong scientific evidence that GMO foods increase obesity and increase inflammatory diseases in human beings. So even if you're eating plant-based foods and they're GMO, you may be causing significant health problems. Uh, Yes, it's true. There's no better diet than the one God originally intended Adam and Eve, and it's not accessible to us. Having said that, for most people, even though that's true, that's not accessible to us, even though the plants have been corrupted through sin just as we have, the plant-based diet for the vast majority of people is still the healthiest. But, not for everyone, uh, I'm only going to put one quote because of shortage of time. But this is a counsel on Diet written by the founder of the, one of the founders of the Adventist Church who founded the Adventist health message. That's what she wrote. Page uh, 204. Do not go to extremes in regard to health reform. Some of our people are very careless in regard to health reform, but because some are far behind, you must not, in order to be an example to them, be an extremist. You must not deprive yourself of the class of food which makes good blood. Your devotion to true principles is leading you to submit yourself to a diet which is giving you an experience that will not recommend health reform. This is your danger. When you see that you are becoming weak physically, it is essential for you to make changes and at once. Put into your diet something you have left out. It is your duty to do this. Get eggs of healthy fowls. Use these eggs cooked or raw. Drop them uncooked into the best unfermented wine you can find. This will supply that which is necessary to your system. Do not, for a moment, suppose that it will not be right to do this. Just one quote. There's many others. This is why I love this author. This author was not a rule-lister, rule-obeyer, checklist person. This author was a principle-based person. This author... Promoted practices that were designed to bring the greatest health benefits, both physically, spiritually, relationally, and otherwise, and you can't cookie cutter a list of rules to do that. Circumstances absolutely matter. People's physiology matters. What they need at this point in time and the resources available to them actually matters. For instance, uh, in certain parts of Africa, I don't know if it's still true, but historically in Somalia and places like that, there was severe famine. and, and, And the UN would bring in food and they had two food sources provided, rice and chicken. And if they were an extreme vegetarian, they would eat rice only and never eat chicken. And they would get pellagra and they would die. For them, it was much better to eat the chicken than to not. Circumstances, that you, you can't have a checklist. That's why I love the author. Very practical, very practical person. Well, we aren't going to have time to finish uh, uh, um, Wednesday and Thursday some other interesting points in the lesson. And, uh, I, I, do, I do have to, no, Thursday we have to jump to. We'll skip Wednesday. Important thing in Thursday. Thursday's lesson points out that Daniel and his three friends graduated from the University of Babylon. And it required that they become experts in the mystical religious practices of Babylon. They had to study the mystical religious practices. And they were experts in it. Ten times wiser than all the rest in the mystical practices of the false religions of Babylon. There's some lessons in this. First first question, isn't it true that there's a law called the law of worship? By beholding, we become changed. Why, having studied for four years the mystical practices of the false religions of Babylon, were Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel not corrupted by studying these systems? They didn't because they didn't they didn't like acknowledge it and take it in as their own. They they didn't acknowledge and take it in as their own. Why did they not acknowledge it and take it in? The truth, the true God. Yeah. Because they knew the truth and the true God. I don't dispute any of this, but there's an element I think we're forgetting here. Is there evidence from other places in Scripture, other places in the book of Daniel, that, sh- that Daniel and his three friends had a habit pattern of spending time with God? Mm-hmm. Not only did they know the truth before they got there, Daniel three times a day would go to his window and pray, right? So was there a practice of maintaining a connection with God? Okay. In my residency, I was required to read all the major psychiatric theorists, Freud, Jung, Adler, and others. Their writings are, are godless and very intellectual. Uh, they absolutely have the per- ability to change people who study and read these things. I don't know if you know this, but in the fields of medicine, the specialty with the highest percentage of people who do not believe in God is psychiatry highest percentage of medical specialists, physicians, who don't believe in God are found in psychiatry, primarily because they're required to study these writings that draw people away from God. And in my residency, I could feel the pull, the pull. And so, um, under the pressure and feeling the pull, I literally spent two hours, for every hour I, I spent reading those writings, I spent two hours in the Bible and other Christian materials, anchoring myself, so that as I went through, I could filter the pieces of truth, because they all have truth. If something is 100% fraudulent, it has very little power over people. Truth is powerful. So the deceptive philosophies have to have pieces of truth in them, or else they will have no power. And so they all had pieces of truth, but you have to have some standard in order to differentiate that, in order to know the truth. And it was in studying God's word and other Christian authors that I was able to differentiate that, and that led to the book, uh, Could It Be This Simple, which we have out here that we give away for those who... Visit us, But I recognize that Freud's piece of truth was the id. He identified correctly the carnal nature, which the Bible also agrees with. That inherent biological drive for physical pleasures and aggression towards others. And the Bible talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is is the the same thing. Uh, I understood that Sullivan identified correctly the God-given drive to relationship. We all have a desire to relate, to love and to be loved, to connect. And this is one of the drives he identified. I understand that Beck was right, that our feelings follow our thoughts. And that if you can identify unhealthy thoughts and replace them with truthful ones, you can experience movements towards health. And so, and many, and many others. And so I was able to go through and identify the pieces that each one of these philosophers had that were truth, but they actually argued against each other where, well, one would argue this was primary and that's primary, and they didn't have the, the whole picture, as I understand it. So, This is how we stay anchored. If you find yourself, there's a lesson. To be an educated person in this world and be effective, you actually need to know the philosophical landscape that you're working against. If you don't know that landscape, then you will be ineffectual in bringing truth to bear to expose and open avenues to enlighten other minds. And so there's a place for us to study. But we cannot be successful in studying those philosophies or those landscapes if we aren't first anchored in the truth and maintain that anchorage with a daily devotional time and and using God's standards to compare and filter things through. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an amazing God, the creator God of truth whose reality is built upon the eternal laws and protocols, uh, the design laws that emanate from you, the principles of love, truth, and freedom. We ask that your spirit of truth will come and enlighten us, help us grow in the knowledge of your kingdom and transform us to live more perfectly in harmony with your kingdom and be effective in sharing this message as the future unfolds. We pray in your holy name. Amen.